Welcome to the Bible Teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia. And here is today's presenter, Daniel Livingston. A few days ago, a group of us was talking about an interesting headline that came up in the news. I don't know if any of you saw this uh, news piece a few days ago. The World Health Organization recently announced the findings of, of its study, where, uh, or a study from all over the world, that has found that eating cancer increases... Uh, eating cancer. <laughs> yeah, eating cancer would definitely increase your risk of cancer. Eating red meat increases your risk of cancer. So, interesting. There are some quite different reactions to this news headline. Um, some people said that they thought that vegetarians were a bit self-righteous. Hmm. Has that ever happened to you? You conscientiously try to do something because you think it's the right thing to do, but you cop flack because people think that you're being a goody two-shoes about it. At school, nobody likes to be called the, children, the, the teacher's pet. Any teacher's pets here? No one's going to admit to it, are they? Yeah, maybe? <laughs> yeah? Tristan. <laughs> the rest of us, we don't want to admit to that. Tristan might. Anyway, and in Christian circles, nobody wants to be called a legalist, unless, except Tristan, maybe. Are you a legalist, Tristan? Yeah? Okay. So the rest of us, though, we don't like that label, the label of being a legalist. It's like being called a teacher's pet or a goody two-shoes. Have you ever been called a legalist? Chances are you probably have. Given that we're all worshipping here on Sabbath and not Sunday, that probably attracts the label legalist. I've certainly been called legalist over the Sabbath Sunday question. Or if you don't eat certain foods or you don't drink certain drinks, that probably gets you the label of legalist as well. I was having lunch once with a, a fellow Christian and uh, I ordered a, a nice healthy vegan plate of food. And she commented after I made my order, she said, you know, a lot of Christians seem to do their righteousness by diet. I guess she was trying to tell me that I probably put a bit too much care into what I ate. She kind of felt that that maybe made me a little bit legalistic. I was kind of like a goody two-shoes type of Christian because I cared about what I did and didn't eat. So what did I say in response? I said to her, yeah, you're right. A lot of Christians do do their righteousness by diet. But then I said, a lot of Christians also do their righteousness by sinning. Is that even possible? To think that we can be good by doing bad. You know, that's what's happening today. Christians are trying it on, at least. And that's the topic of the sermon today. Being good by doing bad. Is that actually possible? It's a common perspective these days. Could it be that we, ourselves, are actually trying to be good by doing bad? You might be surprised by what you find out today. Have you ever been in a situation like this? Your friends are about to do something that's a little bit questionable. You wouldn't normally do it, maybe. But you're in a bit of a bind because if you don't go along and do what they're doing, they're going to think you're a bit of a legalist, a bit of a goody-two-shoes. So there's a bit of pressure on you to, to conform and to, and to go ahead and do it. But on the other hand, if you do go ahead and do what they're doing, you'll at least demonstrate that you're not a legalist. 
And if you're not a legalist, that means you must understand and experience God's grace. And that's a good thing, isn't it? If you do fall into doing something bad, then that helps you rely more on God's grace. So surely we can maybe fall into doing something bad every now and then. So the thinking goes. I'm sure we've all experienced this in some form or another at some point in our lives. I've certainly experienced this and thought like this many times. Today's sermon is going to tackle this head on. Does it work for Christians to be good by doing bad? Does that work? First, we're going to look at just how bad bad is. Then, we're going to look at how good God is. I'm not going to just share bad news. There'll be good news in there as well. And then we're going to ask the question, if God is so good, how are we going to live? So if God is so good and evil is so bad, how do we go about our life? What should be the basis for making our decisions about our behaviour? There's three options that we're going to look at in some detail. First one, given that God is so good, we feel compelled that we need to try and copy him and be good as as well so that we can earn God's favour earn merit. That's the first one that we're going to look at. Be good to earn merit. The second option says, well, God is so good that he'll accept me no matter what, no matter what I do. His grace lets me do anything. The third option says, well, God is good, but I'm going to accept that as the template for my life. And also I'm going to accept God's power to help me live that way because he loves us and we love him. We just want to please him. So let's come back to this idea that falling into bad habits might help us rely on God's grace and forgiveness a little bit more. You know, there's a little bit of truth in that idea, but we can also take that a little bit too far. For example, is it ever good to fall into the bad habit of murder just so that we don't fall into the trap of earning our merit, earning our salvation by keeping people alive? That would be a bad thing, wouldn't it? if we try and earn our salvation by keeping people alive, so we better go and kill someone. Do you get the thinking? I don't think anyone thinks like that, and I don't think I've ever thought, and I don't think anyone here has ever thought like that. It doesn't really make sense, does it? It would be foolish for us as Christians to encourage the odd murder here or there just to make sure that we understand and experience God's grace. So maybe it's the smaller sins that are good to fall into. Telling a lie or going a bit too far physically with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, just to remind us of our weakness and our need to experience God's grace and forgiveness. Is that a a way of thinking that resonates with any of us? I've, I've certainly felt like that. You know, lying and extramarital sex don't seem nearly so bad these days. So maybe God forgives these smaller sins, the socially acceptable ones, and maybe this demonstrates the goodness of Christianity. Maybe God stops us from committing the socially unacceptable sins like murder and stealing, but lets us go and commit the socially acceptable ones. Let's go along with this line of thinking just a bit further. I'm sure we can all relate to it. Perhaps being drunk occasionally, or watching movies filled with lust and violence, or eating whatever food is put in front of us. Perhaps these things are actually good to do so that we don't appear legalistic or like a goody two-shoes in the eyes of the world around us. So the thinking goes, you need to demonstrate you're not a legalist. 
Make Christianity more, more attractive by being prepared to commit the, the minor sins, such as lying, lust, intoxication. I'm calling this being good by doing bad. Can anyone relate to that, that way of thinking? I've th- thought that way a lot. It's the unspoken logic of many in our church today, and it's been the unspoken logic in broader Christianity for longer. Isn't this one of the reasons why many don't keep the Sabbath? There's one big problem in this way of thinking, though. According to my Bible, back in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, it was the small mistake of eating a piece of forbidden fruit that got us into all of this mess. Genesis 3 verse 6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. That small mistake brought misery and death and suffering on this whole world. And it even brought the death of Jesus. Isn't it fair to conclude then that no matter how small the mistake, nothing justifies murder, even to a non-believer, and any mistake murdered Jesus? So we've drawn the line, though, at socially acceptable sins. Maybe this shows that sometimes we might care more about what people think of us than what God thinks. Thank God for for forgiveness in Jesus, though. We all need it. We're, We're all equally guilty for lots of evil in our lives, but by God's grace, we all have forgiveness in Jesus. The Bible is clear, though, that no sin should be excused, not even because of God's abundant grace. Let's turn to Romans 6. And we'll read the first couple of verses. Romans 6. I'm not going to get you to look up every verse today, but this is a one worth looking up. Romans 6 and verses 1 and 2 say to us, Watch. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Sin is a horrible thing. It can be forgiven, but it can't be excused. Sin killed Jesus, and it separates us from God. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, Your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. And Jesus, when he was dying on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced that separation caused by sin. There's nothing good about sin. But God is amazingly good. That's the good news. Jesus took our guilt and suffered for us. Astonishing, really. God's love, his grace, they are amazing. Romans 5 tells us that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And it also says that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. That's amazing and incredible self-sacrificing love. The heart and mind of God is to love the sinner but hate the sin. And we're going to see that in... Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is another passage worth reading, turning to. 2 Corinthians 5 and verses 19 to 21. And it says, That is that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. 
Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as, through, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Isn't that amazing? We are called righteous, even though we aren't. And God, Jesus, was called a sinner and died the death of a sinner, even though he never sinned. Christ was treated as we deserve, that we might be treated as he deserves. He was condemned for our sins in which he had no share, that we might be justified by his righteousness in which we have no share. He suffered the death which was ours, that we might receive the life which was his. By his stripes we are healed. So what do we do? How do we live our lives? We've, we've looked at how bad sin is and how good God is. What should be our response in terms of how we should live our lives? We looked at the three options before, and we'll review them again. The second one of them, which I'll start with now, says that God is good, therefore I can do whatever I want. And that's where most Christians today, at least Christians that I know, um, in this part of the world, probably not in other parts of the world, but anyway, most of Christianity today in the West seems to be here. God is good, therefore I can do whatever I want. Most Christians, though, start their experience in the legalistic mindset. They they say, sin is bad, therefore I'll try to be good in my own strength to earn favour with God. And the Pharisees in the Bible are great examples of this way of thinking. But there's a third option. We don't have to go between those two options. The third option says, I love God and I want my life to glorify him. We obey because of love. Now, I just want to make a big disclaimer here. I'm not wanting to fix your behaviour. I'm not wanting to point the finger at anyone. My life is full of flaws that only God can fix. I'm definitely not qualified to be pointing out flaws in anyone else. But I do want to identify flawed thinking. I've made this mistake in my thinking, and I'm sure that it's a common mistake to think that we can be good by doing bad. I've also made the mistake of legalism, to try to be good in my own strength, and that's another mistake that we should leave behind. Let's try and leave both mistakes behind. You know, we're all going to think slightly differently about Christian behaviour. We're all going to do things differently, in fact, quite differently sometimes. That's to be expected. Just read Romans 14 if you want to read what the Bible has to say about us interpreting, you know, God's commands slightly differently and drawing the lines in slightly different places. That's something to be expected. But we should all put effort into doing the will of God, or at least to the best of our understanding of what that will of God is, doing what's right and not doing what's wrong. Not to earn our salvation, but because we love God. I want to make that clear. We're not talking about doing good to earn salvation. We're talking about doing good because we love God. Our Christian thinking has lost sight of the horror of sin and the separation from God that it causes. It seems that we're now thinking more like non-believers, We're willing to see Christianity's principles as just reinforcing what society expects of a well-rounded citizen. We've completely lost sight of that part of our Christianity that tells us, that calls for us to be a peculiar people. Let's look up what Titus 2, verse 14 says about that. Titus, just before Hebrews, after the Timothys. Titus 2, verse 14, where Paul says, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. And in fact, 
older translations say peculiar people, not just special people, but peculiar, as in very different from the world. But Christianity seems to have taken on the culture and the values of the world around us. That's why some parts of Christianity are now embracing lifestyles that would have been unthinkable just a few decades ago. Reminds me of another verse that Paul wrote in Romans 12, where he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. So how did this skewed thinking come into the Christian worldview? The Bible hasn't changed, but the world has become critical of goody-two-shoes types. So Christianity has hidden its teachings on lifestyle reform. Living a distinctly different lifestyle is, is a lot less popular these days. Sin has become sanitised. Isaiah says to us, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. I think he was looking forward to our day. And Paul says to us in Romans 12, Love must be sincere. Cling to, uh, hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Christianity today needs to see obedience in a new light. The issue with disobedience is not so much the breaking of rules. The issue is the breaking of the heart of God. Obedience has definitely been done for the wrong reasons in the past. The Pharisees made a heap of extra rules and they completely lost sight of Jesus and the gospel and they ended up killing Jesus. But just because obedience has been done for the wrong reasons doesn't mean we should scrap obedience altogether. It's actually beneficial for God, for others and for ourselves. Obedience is not primarily about the benefits to us, to ourselves. It's more about the benefit to God and others. The benefits to ourselves are just a bonus. There definitely are benefits to ourselves as well. Let's look up Matthew 5 and verse 16 on this point. Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus said in Matthew 5 verse 16... Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So the purpose of obedience is to glorify God, not to glorify ourselves. And Paul says to us, Therefore, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. God's glory is, what is, the, is the result of our obedience. When thinking about obedience, we've often thought of it in terms of the question, Is it necessary for me to be obedient to be saved? The answer to that question is simple yet complicated, and it's why it's become a bit of a dirty concept. Um, no, good works are not required, but obedience is still highly recommended and highly valuable. So we've got two groups that have ended up forming. The do-what-you-want group, you can see on the screen, grace is going at bargain prices, cheap grace we call it. Do what you want. Grace can let me do anything. The other group is the legalist group. Be good to earn merit. But both groups are missing the point of obedience. They're both only interested in the question of what's in it for me. Let's ask a different question and you'll see that obedience is actually a beautiful thing. Does it please God when we obey him? Does God want us to obey him? The answer is clearly yes. Not only that, but he gives us the power to obey because we can't do that by ourselves. Jesus said to us, in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. It's like the question of marriage. Husbands, there's a couple of husbands out here. If you want a good marriage, 
do you, a happy marriage, is it necessary to take the rubbish out? <laughs> it's a tricky question, isn't it? Okay, if you want to be married, do you need to take the rubbish out? No. You, I don't need to take the rubbish out to be married to Renee. But if I want a happy marriage... Yeah, okay, I need to. She's, she's said, I need to take the rubbish out to have a happy marriage. It's like we're asking the question, do I need to obey God in, in order to be saved? And the answer, that's, the answer is no, but therefore we, do we conclude, therefore we don't need to obey? Of course, we don't need to take the rubbish out to have a happy marriage. To, sorry, to have a marriage, to be married, but to have a, an effective marriage, um, a meaningful marriage that's more than just um, a dysfunctional cohabitation, it's important for husband and wife to do things that please each other and sometimes to obey the requests of the other person. It doesn't have to be the husband taking out the rubbish. It could be the wife doing something for the husband as well. That's why, you know, there's more books on how to have a happy marriage than how to get married. But in Christianity, all we're interested in asking the question is, do we need to obey to be saved? We're not interested in asking the question of how can we have a meaningful, happy Christian life. Is it because we don't want to do... We, we want to, sorry, we want to be able to do our own thing and get away with the minimal amount of effort possible and still have eternal life? So today's message is not about the question of whether obedience is necessary for our salvation. That's not the question we should be asking. I think we should constantly be asking... What is God's will for my life? And he gives, if he gives us an answer, then why not obey it? God loves us, and he wants what's best for us. He's already given us plenty of direction as to how we should live in the Bible. It only makes sense that we should live by the health principles in the Bible. We'll live longer and have less disease. It's cheaper and it's better for the planet and for animal welfare too, as a bonus. Deuteronomy says... If you, if you and your descendants want to live a long time, you must always worship the Lord and obey his laws. It only makes sense to build up God's kingdom before building up our own earthly assets, our ornaments and our display trophies. It only makes sense to give God back a portion of our time and money, well, actually, his time and his money that he's given to us. It only makes sense to put God first and trust his promise that all these things will be added to us that we sung about, sung about um, earlier on. Okay, so how do we obey his laws? It's all through Jesus and because of him. By looking at, at Jesus, we have strength and our motivation also changes. Let's look up Hebrews chapter 12 and we'll just read the first few verses there. Hebrews 12. And this gives us a clear picture of how we can have strength and motivation to obey God's commands. Hebrews 12, verses 1 through to 4. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. We don't often read the next two verses, but I think it sheds some interesting light on the questions that we're asking today. 
Verse 3, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. Look to Jesus and do it for Jesus. He endured so much for us and did so much for us. You know, marketing tells us today that we should just gratify our own desires and that the world should revolve around me. But God tells us that happiness comes from serving him first and others second. Christians will therefore look very different from those who don't follow God. They will even look peculiar. Let's look up the Gospel Commission in Matthew 28. Matthew 28, 18 or 19 and 20. Um, And there's one part of the Gospel Commission that we often overlook. The Gospel Commission gives us motivation to share the good news of salvation in Jesus to all the world, and that's a a really great thing. Um, But there's right in the middle of it, Jesus encourages us to focus also on obedience. Obedience is a big part of that commission. Let's have a look. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus gave us lots of commands, and evidently he expects his followers to obey them. But humans generally don't like rules. We either like to follow them better than everyone else so that we can say, hey, look at me, I'm better than everyone else. Or we like to thumb our noses at them. We just don't do well with rules. We like to fudge the rules too. We either want to relax them if they're a bit too harsh or we want to make them harsher depending on what suits us. Right now, it seems that the Christian church is tending toward moving as many rules as possible into that grey area where we're not quite sure if they're intended for all people, for all places and for all times, and even if they are, we're not quite sure how we should keep them. True, there is a grey area that's debatable. As I said, the Bible talks about that in Romans chapter 14, and I recommend that you read Romans 14 to see how the Bible says we should deal with that grey area. I can't and I won't tell you where the boundaries, the lines are for all the commands in the Bible. That's not the purpose of today's message. That grey area is getting bigger right now. Fellow Christians are quick to accuse others of legalism. Those accused of being legalists might simply be trying to conscientiously follow Jesus. They may not deserve that judgment at all. Next time you want to call someone a legalist, even in your own mind, you think, oh, that person's just a legalist, ask yourself if you're not using that as a cover for not wanting to obey God's clear command. It's my hope that today's sermon might help to answer a couple of questions that you might have. One of them, why does the Bible give us so much guidance as to how Christians should live, and yet Christians today seem to think that it's not relevant to them? Why is it that when I struggle with certain temptations, the Christian church just gives me a pat on the back and says, don't worry about it, God loves you, he'll accept you, and his grace covers you. And then the church pretty much leaves us in the condition where we started, as if that's a good thing. And why do we keep jumping in between these two responses, either to try and keep the rules, or to say, forget it, I'll do whatever I want, 
It's too hard. Give up and not care. Thank God there's a better way. If you're thinking right now, there's something in my life that's probably not in harmony with God's will, then don't give up. That's a place I often find myself in too. There's not much I can do to change my own heart. And the Bible says that in Jeremiah. It says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. We can't clean up our own lives ourselves. But the good news is that God can and does fix up both our hearts and our actions. Jude 24 gives us this promise. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. But we do stumble, don't we? And if you get frustrated because, you, because you're stumbling all the time, just keep on getting up. Proverbs 24.16 says that a righteous man falls seven times more often than a wicked man. The difference is he keeps on getting up. The wicked man just falls once and stays down. Please don't ever think that your good works will gain you merit or salvation with God. They don't, they won't. None of the Bible's commands are ever given as though our salvation depends on our works. There are plenty of other good reasons to obey. Just like in a marriage, if you're already married, your spouse doesn't expect you to make dinner tonight just to stay married. But since when do you only do things for your husband or wife just to ensure that you either get married or stay married? That would be a pretty basic, minimalist and dysfunctional marriage. It's the same with our Christianity. Why is it that we congratulate ourselves for getting away with such a minimal approach to our Christianity? We've come to think that it's a good thing when we fit our spiritual and our church lives around our lifestyles than the other way around. We've come to believe that we can be good by doing bad. The devil knows that there's power in a loving, lovable Christian, one that truly lives according to Christian principles and behaviours. So he's deceived us on this very point. He's got us to feel that our Christianity is better when we do wrong than when we do what's right. And we think that we're good because we've proved that we're not legalists. At least least we're not one of those goody-two-shoes in the eyes of the world. The world, though, is waiting to see loving Christianity at work. Then we might see revival and awakening like we've never seen before. You know, there are some great things happening here at my house. The Yes We, yes we Care um, outreach and the food bank. Uh, it's going to be starting soon. Yes We Care has already started. Find out what's going on in these things and get behind them. Not because we earn any merit or favour with God by getting involved in these things. We do them because God loves us, we love him back, and he's asked us to share his love with the world around us. If there are things in your life that you know aren't in harmony with God's will, then surrender those things to God. If you've had an attitude of God's grace will cover me no matter what I do, therefore I'll do whatever I want, then surrender that attitude to God too. He loves to see us obey his will for our lives. We all have behaviours that are outside of God's will and need his forgiveness. And we all need power, his power to clean up our lives. Let's turn to a, a passage that gives us promises on just those areas in 1 John. 1 John, towards the end of the Bible. So we know that we need his forgiveness and we know that we need his power to clean up our lives. 
And this passage gives us encouragement in both of those things. 1 John 1 verse 9, we often just read this verse, but I want to read the next few after that as well. 1 John 1 verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. I'm not giving this message today to try to fix people's behaviours. My desire is to give you freedom in your mind to serve God and obey him. If you've had an attitude before that says my actions don't matter to God or even that obedience is legalism so therefore it's better to disobey, then I'm asking you, God is asking you to leave that attitude behind today. Your actions do matter to God, not for your salvation, but for his glory. There's a world out there in need of his love. God is asking you to go and share him with others, to be a loving and lovable Christian, to hate all things wrong and selfish, and to love the things that God loves. Today's message is based on the premise that we've all already found favour with God through Jesus. That comes first. If you haven't experienced that, all you need to do is believe in Jesus and you have forgiveness and eternal life now, already. Now we're asking the question, now that we are already forgiven and saved in Jesus, how do we go about our lives? How can we live to glorify God? Does obedience make sense? Yes, of course. If the only question we ever ask is, do I need to obey to be saved? That's a pity. It's actually a selfish question. It shows that we only care about ourselves. That's been my selfish question. I've been there. Do I need to obey to be saved? The answer is no. Obedience is not required. But it's like asking the question, do I need to put the rubbish out to be married? Of course not. It's a silly question, isn't it? Christianity is different to all other religions in the world. It isn't good advice for behaviour modification so that we can save ourselves. That's what all the other religions are. So Christians tend to go to the other extreme, rejoicing in God's grace and neglecting the good principles for Christian behaviour. But the principles for behaviour modification in Christianity aren't for our own salvation. They're for our happiness, the happiness of others, God's glory, and the salvation of others. The Olympics provides a useful analogy, and I've got a few analogies from sport, and then I'll come back to marriage for those who don't follow sport. Just qualifying for the games and then not caring how one performs once you're there is kind of like cheap grace. And there were some in the Australian swim team in the last Olympics who kind of had this mentality. Getting to the Olympic Games and performing to the best of your ability is like the gospel. Freedom from the things that hold you back and embracing the love of God to perform at your best. So what about the other option, legalism? To be a legalist at the Olympics, you'd have to take performance-enhancing drugs. I don't know who remembers Ben Johnson from the 88 Seoul Olympics. Okay, so the analogy isn't quite perfect, but I'm sure you get the general idea. 
if you consciously underperform at the Olympics, you might get kicked out, just like the four women's badminton teams that reached the quarterfinals at the last Olympics. They all tried to lose in order to choose who they would meet in the next round. They got kicked out. Or it could be a team culture that under, uh, unconsciously leads to underperformance. And the Australian swim team uh, was found to have a poor team culture. There was a review done into their poor performance. Why didn't we win so many medals that we normally do? And the review found that they dropped their standards. The Aussie swim team was found to have a culture of binge drinking and even bullying with no accountability. Let's see what Jesus said about the Aussie swim team in Matthew 24. And I'll just read this. Um, Jesus says, The evil servant begins to beat his fellow servants, bullying, and to eat and drink with the drunkards, like the swim team. The master will come on a day when he is not looking for him and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. In the Christian life, obedience won't get you into heaven, but willful disobedience is, well, Jesus said it, I'll just say that disobedience is dangerous. The Australian swim team tried some of the things that Jesus spoke against, and didn't get the, result that we've, the results that we've all come to expect from our swimmers. Paul also said some things relevant to our swim team in 1 Corinthians 9. And I'll just read this one again. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. The All, Black, All Blacks just won the World Cup last weekend. It's interesting to read one of the things that made the All Blacks such a dominant team over the last few years. In 2004, about 10 years ago, they had a terrible loss to South Africa and they had a wild drunk party afterwards. It was a low point for the All Blacks. They realised at that time that they needed to clean up the team culture. They adopted some standards of behaviour. No more binge drinking. No more bringing women back to the hotel rooms. Recognise the privilege of being an all-black and behave accordingly. The results have spoken for themselves. Back-to-back World Cups for the the all-blacks. In some sports, it's entrenched that the athletes are only expected to perform when there's a prize to be gained. People don't try so hard when there's nothing to play for. Teams that have already made the finals don't try so hard, and teams that know they can't make the finals also don't try so hard. Or a team that's already won a championship, it'll put out its B team. It's like with Christianity. When we discover that our performance doesn't help us gain any more favour with God, we're tempted not to try anymore. We underperform. There's nothing left to play for. But this is a very self-centred approach to our Christianity. As we read from Romans before, where Paul said, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. In Italian soccer, they take underperforming to a whole new level. There's match fixing and all sorts of things going on over there in the Italian soccer. There are stories of players being abused because they didn't underperform when they're expected to. It can be like that in our Christian walk. We can get abused simply because we want to do the will of God. Our friends or family may prefer it if we underperformed. The Bible has something to say about this attitude in John chapter 3. And this is the last Bible verse. We'll look this one up. John chapter 3 and verse 19 and 20. This is what the Bible says about 
us wanting to avoid top performance, wanting to underperform. So verse 19 says, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. One last analogy. For those that don't follow sport or don't have any interest in sport, here's an analogy you might be able to relate to. We'll move back to marriage. If my wife asked me to buy flowers for her every anniversary, that's her wish, her desire, let's say. It might be, I don't know, I could ask her. Let's say her desire is that I get her flowers every, every year for our anniversary. I think her, her wish is that we go away for the weekend. I think I've got it right. Anyway, if it was flowers, one of the options I could do is put in an order to get flowers delivered at the doorstep every year on a recurring order, and I wouldn't have to do anything more about it. That would be like the legalistic approach, following the letter of the law, but my heart's not in it. Next option I could take is saying, oh, Renee loves me. My wife loves me. There's no need to go, you know, go to any effort to try and get these uh, flowers for her. She'll love me regardless. That's a cheap marriage, just like cheap grace. Choosing different flowers every year and taking my wife on a special date, that's a happy marriage. God has asked us for a weekly date every Sabbath. How will you respond to that invitation, that command? God has asked us to do many things. The Bible is full of his commands as to how we should live. Think of his request in the same way as a marriage. Not a dysfunctional marriage, but a happy marriage. Where his commands are always for our best happiness, because he loves us. Are you going to say, oh, it doesn't matter, God loves me anyway and he forgives. I'll just do what I want. Or are we going to respond by saying, Lord, I'll obey because I love you. We're not talking about obeying to earn favour with God or earn our salvation. There are plenty of other good reasons to obey. Don't let anyone fool you into thinking that obedience is not important for a Christian. All right, we're wrapping up. If you've seen obedience in a new light today, I want you to raise your hand. Has anyone seen obedience in a new light? We can become accustomed to thinking of a desire to be obedient as a problem, legalism, goody-two-shoes, Christianity. So we've developed a culture of thinking we can be good by doing bad. So I'm going to ask you something a bit more challenging here. Put your hand up again. If you're going to place more importance on obedience in the future than you had in your life until now, just in case you're still a bit hesitant, I'll also add that the extra importance that you'll place on obedience isn't because you're going to be trying to earn salvation through that, but because you love Jesus and you want to bring glory to him. Anyone fit that category? Amen. And if you've already had that attitude and you just want to recommit your life to, to, uh, to Jesus with dedication and obedience, also raise your hand. Cool. Thank you. Lord, we just want to thank you so much for your abundant grace that freely gives us salvation and forgiveness in Jesus. Lord, thank you also for giving us power to obey you and to live a transformed life where we can share your love with those around us. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, 
you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 2 4973 3456. Our email address is radio at 3abn That is radio at the number 3abn Australia, all one word, .org.au. Our postal address is 3abn Australia Inc., PO Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales 2264, Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. short presentation on the history of the Reformation from lineagejourney.com. Whitby, England, today a seaside town, but the spiritual heritage of this town dates all the way back to the 7th century. In 656, the abbey was founded by Abbas Hilda, and in 663, the Whitby Synod was held here between the leaders of the Celtic Church and the leaders of the Catholic Church, and it was not without confrontation. This synod set the dates for Easter that are kept by the church today, and it also led to the establishment of the Roman religion elsewhere in England. At that time, in this part of England, the Celtic church was the dominant faith, due to the missionary work of Aidan, who had been sent over from Iona. These people were Bible believers. They kept the Sabbath and they did not recognize the papacy as ruler in spiritual affairs. Coleman was the successor of Finnan. Finnan was the successor of Aidan, who originally started the work here in England. And Coleman had only been working for three years when the Council of Whitby was called. He had a couple of things against him. Firstly, that he had only been working for three years. Secondly, that his opponent, Wilfred, was well-drilled in the papal arguments. And thirdly, that the queen of the king was Catholic. The principal question of the debate was, when would the date of Easter lie? Now, Wilfred had spent four years before this in Rome, where he was well-studied, and he wanted to come back here to Northumbria, determined to bring the Celtic church into subjugation. He wanted an open debate, and King Osby agreed for an open forum. So on one side, you had Coleman, the Scottish clerks, and Abbess Hilda, and on the other side, you had the king, the prince, the queen, and Wilfred, and so the debate began. Coleman skillfully answered the questions in regards to Easter, but Wilfred brought the debate around to the issue of Peter's authority and eventually succeeded in convincing the king of his arguments. The king and the people decided to conform to the pretended superiority of the papal Easter and thus align the church in England with the papacy, a shift from its original roots. Coleman soon left for the island of Iona, and following this, four dark centuries followed in England. Soon after, the Danish Vikings swept through England, bringing with them a flood of paganism. 
The Celtic Church would remain strong in Scotland, in Wales, and in Ireland. But even in England, followers of truth would persist over the centuries. The seed sown by Aidan, Finnan, and Coleman would continue. So that when John Wycliffe began his marvelous revival centuries later, his followers are thought by some to be those who maintained from generation to generation the doctrines of Aidan. One thing we learn here from the Council of Whitby is that though the cause of God took an apparent defeat, we have to remember that we're living in a great controversy where there's a battle between truth and evil. And like in the words of the song, once to every man and nation, where the words go, though the cause of evil prosper, yet his truth alone is strong. Sometimes in our life or in our work, it can look like the cause of God is taking a beating. It can look like the cause of God is suffering. Yet we need to remember that we're living in a great controversy. There's a battle between truth and error, between right and wrong, between God and Satan. If we abide in Christ, if we align ourselves with God, we can know that we will always end up on the winning side, though on the way there will sometimes be apparent defeats. To view more episodes in this series on the Reformation, go to lineagejourney.com. When my life's work has ended and I cross the swelling tide And the bright and glorious morning I shall see I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side, and His smile will be the first to welcome me. I shall know Him. I shall know I shall stand, I shall know Him, I shall know Him by the Prince of the shall know Him, and redeemed by His side, I shall stand. I shall know Him, I shall know Him, by the Prince
That was Melita Fong with the song Learning to Lean. Before that, we listened to the Ball Brothers, I Shall Know Him.
search me now and know my heart. Then show me how to do my part. To walk the way you'd have me go, and if I stray, Lord, I still That was Ride the Morning Wind by his song. It's been our pleasure bringing you this program today here on 3ABN Australia Radio.